For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Dirt Show. That big smile on my face is having just come back from our daughter's wedding. It was a wonderful, wonderful event with a hundred of her closest friends. Uh, not very many uh, adults, just the father of the bride, the mother of the bride, the father, the groom, mother of the groom. My wife got me a shirt that uh, had a godfather image across it and it said bride's father. And so I wore that to the to the breakfast. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start with a letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the letter uh, says um, I, I had uh, said that I was singing a song at the um, at the wedding. And um, I did. I sang a song. It's an old Yiddish song um, that it's sung by the father of the bride when the bride is the youngest daughter. And it's called the Majinka Eiska Given. It's a Yiddish song, which means finally our youngest daughter is getting married. And, and I, I sang it. And so the letter says, Alan, you need to video your version of the Majinka Eiska Given song and play it on your podcast from an ardent conservative Christian I wish your family the best. You're a good man, an exceptional lawyer, and a great American. Well, when I get an invitation to sing, I, I accept it. So here, I'm going to do one verse of it the way I sang it yesterday. That's what I sang. Everybody said, keep your day job. You're never going to be a chazan. You'll never be a cantor. But I did it with love in my heart, even missing a few notes. Um, but And my Yiddish wasn't so bad. I got, a, I got an email from a chassidic rabbi complimenting me on on, on my Yiddish. So uh, it was a very, very happy couple of days up in the Catskill uh, Mountains. And now I'm back to the real world. My daughter and her wonderful husband are off on their honeymoon. And here we are back in real world, real world. So what I want to talk about today is something I've talked about before, but there are some new angles uh, on it. Um, as you know, there's an organization called the 65 Project. It's a group of radical, hard left, anti-Trump, get Trump lawyers um, that got together and said their goal is to try to disbar and discipline any lawyer who represented Trump or associates of Trump. Uh, the goal is to embarrass them, to discipline them and to make it impossible for them to uh, represent people who this group, the 65 Project, doesn't like. It's, it's, it's an old McCarthyite. A tactic. It's the new McCarthyism of the left rather than the right. And as soon as I read what uh, Project 65 was doing, I did what I always do. I volunteered to represent uh, any lawyer who was targeted by the 65 Project and to make constitutional defenses on their behalf. So I agreed to go to whatever state they were in and, and make the defense uh, under the Constitution. So what do you think Project 65 did? They filed a bar complaint against me, uh, thereby precluding me 
from appearing in, in other states. You know, if you have a bar charge against you, they ask you about it if you try to get uh, what's called a pro, pro hoc admission in another state. And of course, you have to be totally frank and honest when you apply for ad hoc admission. So I'd have to say that um, I have a bar complaint against me and I'd have to indicate what the bar complaint was, was based on. It was based on the fact that uh, in a case in Arizona, I challenged um, the uh, I challenged the um, uh, use in the future of machines, um, m voting machines, unless the machine companies were prepared to um, to um, expose or allow experts to examine their mechanisms to be sure that they weren't capable of being hacked. And so this is what I what I wrote. Uh, I wrote one paragraph in the complaint. This is it. It is important to note that this complaint is not an attempt to undo the past. Uh, in other words, it didn't try to challenge the uh, late election in Arizona or certainly not the Trump election in, in 2000. It's important to note this complaint did not attempt to undo the past. Most specifically, it is not about undoing the 2020 presidential election. It is only about the future, about upcoming elections that will employ voting machines designed and run by private companies performing a crucial government function that refuse to disclose their software and system components and subject them to a neutral uh, expert. Um, let's see, neutral, neutral expert evaluation. It raises the profound constitutional issue. Can government avoid its obligation of democratic transparency and accountability by delegating a critical government function to private companies? You, you'd think that's a, a pretty good argument. Um, I think it's a pretty good argument. It's an argument that should should win if the case gets to the Supreme Court. But the Arizona court ruled against that complaint and then sanctioned the lawyers, uh, sanctioned me only minimally because, as they said, I wrote only one paragraph. And the paragraph there's nothing wrong with the paragraph. So uh, I, I was sanctioned um, for 10 percent. Um, um, and and uh, of course, I didn't deserve any sanctions. I didn't do anything wrong. The paragraph I wrote was perfectly, perfectly good. And I didn't sign the complaint as counsel. I signed the complaint as a consultant of counsel. And my agreement, I didn't, I wouldn't defend the, represent the defendant. I represented a lawyer and I consulted with the lawyer on this. And so I wrote that paragraph. And as a result of that, the, 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 the uh, judge found all the people, including the lawyers and me of counsel consultant, 10%. As a result of that, of course, that was their excuse. Uh, the 65 Project went after me and filed the bar complaint. As the result of that, I can't defend the lawyers who I would like to help defend um, in courts around the country um, because I have to then put on my application for pro hoc. I have a bar complaint, and a bar complaint is going to take time to resolve. I'm confident, and my lawyers are confident that we will win. What's wrong with that paragraph? I mean, it was... A paragraph I would have given a good grade to if I uh, had a student who wrote a paragraph like that. Um, and so, but until the bar complaint is resolved, I can't um, file a bar, an application for pro hoc without indicating that there is a bar complaint. And, you know, that may well result in me being denied the right to, to, to practice. So clearly what the 65 project didn't, they were, they were clever about it, unconstitutional, uh, immoral, McCarthyite, but clever. By simply filing the bar complaint, they took me out of the game. Uh, I can't now help 
um, lawyers, uh, whether it be uh, uh, Eastman or Chesborough or lawyers in other cases involving Trump or the lawyers who are named as unindicted co-conspirators, they need lawyers, too, uh, to try to get them out of that status. But I can't do it. Um, they the the 65 project has succeeded. They said they would succeed by shaming us. I'm not shamed. I'm proud of of, uh, of of what I did. I'm proud of having defended President Trump on the floor of the Senate, even though I voted against him. So they can't shame me, um, but they can try to disqualify me from appearing in, in various states. And so I'm fighting them uh, tooth and nail. It's costing me a fortune. I've had to hire very good lawyers, obviously. And, you know, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, a man who defends himself as a fool for a lawyer. And uh, although I'm sometimes uh, foolish and play a greater role in defending myself than I probably ought to, I have had to bring on Arizona lawyer, uh, Massachusetts lawyer, and other lawyers to um, help in my defense. And lawyers are expensive. They're not like me. I do a lot of my cases pro bono. But my lawyers don't do it pro bono. They Most of them. The Arizona lawyer did represent me um, through much of the proceeding of pro bono, but now he has to get paid, and the Massachusetts lawyers have to get paid. And, and so um, it they have succeeded, and that's the, the terrible thing about it. McCarthyism worked, and the new McCarthyism works as well, uh, not through the mechanism of shame, but through the mechanism of, of disqualification. And so what the Project 65 is doing is using judges, using the court system, using the bar as a vehicle for denying defendants the right to counsel of their choice. Now, I've gotten lots and lots of calls um, from uh, potential defendants and defendants asking me if I would join their defense team. And I, I haven't been able to do it because of this uh, of this bar uh, uh, charge. The difference between McCarthyism and the new McCarthyism is during the old McCarthyism, a lot of lawyers came to the defense of lawyers who were targeted by the McCarthyites. Today, lawyers don't come to the defense of people like me. If you defended Trump, you've disqualified yourself from getting the help of the ACLU, major law firms, a major law firm. Um, I asked to help represent me and the lawyer there said, oh, I'd love to, but then he said his firm wouldn't let him because I had defended Trump and the firm didn't want to get in any way involved in anybody who had anything to do with defending Trump. That's the new McCarthyism. And since the Get Trump Brigade posse includes many, many, many lawyers, uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, members of the Federalist Society, people from all walks of life, I understand that. I'm not a Trump supporter, but I don't understand that they don't understand John Adams, that they don't understand that you defend people without regard to whether you agree with them or not, if you think fundamental constitutional Issues are involved. In fact, in the um, um, Boston Massacre case, there weren't great constitutional issues involved. There were issues of fact, who fired first, who threw snowballs. It wasn't a great legal issue, but uh, the Boston soldiers, uh, the Bar British soldiers in Boston, couldn't get a zealous defense uh, because nobody would defend. This was, you know, six years, seven years before the American Revolution. Who was going to defend Boston soldiers? So John Adams did almost destroyed his his career. And um, uh, someday I'm going to establish a, a John Adams Award for, for lawyers who do uh, take action against their own 
political views that may endanger their careers and sometimes endanger their lives. Um, Thurgood Marshall was shot at uh, when he went to the South uh, defending murderers and rapists. Um, and the people on the left regard him as a hero. But if you defended Trump, you're not a hero, you're a villain and you're an enabler. And uh, all the words that uh, McCarthyites use to describe civil liberties lawyers who are anti-communists and who defended them. I've told this joke before, but it, it's, it's, it's maybe an apocryphal story. It may be true. City College was a hotbed of, uh, of communism in the 1930s. And there was a communist rally on the City College campus and the police come, came to broke it up, break it up. And they were with their clubs hitting people on the head. And they hit somebody on the head and he said, stop, stop hitting me. I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm an anti-communist. And the policeman says, hey, I don't care what kind of communist you are. And he continued to hit him. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thoughtlessness that a lot of people have today. Uh, you know, if you think the danger is so great and communism, many people thought the danger was very great. Remember in the 1950s, Khrushchev said, we will bury you. He banged his chair, his shoe on the table. They had taken over China. They had taken over uh, uh, Cuba. They had taken over so many parts of the of the world, Eastern Europe, and people really thought uh, we used to do these duck and hide, whatever they were called, exercises where we had to hide under the desk to protect us from an atomic bomb, right? Um, but there was real fear. There was real fear of the Japanese, uh, Japanese Americans uh, after Pearl Harbor. And so we violated the constitution and detained 110,000 Americans in detention centers uh, and during McCarthyism, we violated the constitution and during the um, anti-immigrant raids of uh, the second decade of the 20th century, the Palmer raids, we uh, violated the constitution and we're violating the constitution now in an effort to, to get Trump and to get Trump's associates and to make sure that Trump isn't allowed to run. That's what get Trump's all about. It's not, prosecuting him. That's a means toward the end. Uh, the best evidence is you take Adam Schiff today, um, who uh, uh, wants to disqualify uh, Donald Trump from running. He's afraid of him. He's afraid of you. He's afraid that the people will vote against his wishes. He thinks democracy guarantees a result. That is the defeat of Donald Trump. Well, the best way to defeat Donald Trump is to vote against him. Uh, if Donald Trump is defeated in a fair and open election without being disqualified under the 14th Amendment or being disqualified because he's being prosecuted in you know, Florida and, and Georgia and D.C. And, and New York for crimes that would not normally be the subject of prosecution if he weren't running for office. In fact, some people have suggested, why don't they make a deal? He'll agree not to run for office and they'll agree to drop, drop the charges against him. If you ever need better proof that the purpose of the charges is to stop him from running, that's pretty strong evidence. And so um, it's all part of the same campaign, the same get Trump campaign. And project the 65 project is part of it. And that's not uh, hard to understand. These are zealots. Uh, these are get Trump fanatics and extremists. What's a little harder to understand is how they are successfully using the courts, bar associations, judges, um, prosecutors, uh, and others, and lawyers, and lawyers to do their dirty work. And that the bar association is not complaining. You'd think the American Bar Association, the American Civil Liberties Union, other lawyers groups um, 
would stand up for lawyers uh, who are being prevented from defending uh, clients who they disagree with um, because they're, they have bar complaints filed against them. That's a new tactic. It's very easy to file a bar complaint. Uh, anybody can do it. All you have to do is write a letter. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a litigant. You don't have to be a member of the bar. You don't have to live in the state. Uh, the bar complaint filed against me in, in, in Massachusetts was filed by the 65 Project. They're not from Boston. Um, they're from all over, and they based it on a, an Arizona case, not a Massachusetts case. It's a real stretch, but the, it's, it succeeded. It, it is, is succeeding unless I can get it undone, and uh, I will try as hard as I can to get it undone as much as I can afford to do it. Um, uh, you know, the wedding cost me a bit, and, but not nothing compared to what this um, uh, this this need to defend myself against these false charges. Um, and I will continue to defend myself. And um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do to avoid charges. I mean, my God, that paragraph that I read to you, what could possibly be wrong with that? When, when the government allocates to a private company an important government function, and what's more important than counting votes, don't you think that's a private company should have the same obligation of transparency as the government has? Should they be able to say, no, we have business secrets. We're not going to let you look at our algorithms. We're not going to let you look at the internal workings of our machine. We're not going to let you check to see whether the machine is hackable or not. There are experts who claim that these machines are. I don't know whether they are or not. That's not my job. I'm not the expert. I'm the lawyer. I'm not saying the machines are wrong. I didn't say that in the paragraph that I wrote, I said that the important issue is to have them subjected to outside expert analysis so that the courts can make a determination as to whether the machines are reliable or not. A very, very, very high percentage of Americans don't believe that these voting machines are reliable. Many believe that they're capable of being manipulated. I don't believe myself particular knowledge of it, but I don't believe they were manipulated in any of the past elections that I'm familiar with. And I became very interested in elections starting in 2000 when I defended the voters of Palm Beach County in the uh, butterfly ballot uh, uh, case and wrote a book about it called Supreme Injustice. So I've been following elections for a long time and I stand by my view. No, a private company should not be allowed to take over a government function unless it's prepared to act like the government and be transparent. And I'd be interested if anybody disagrees with that. I, I, I'm interested in even if any judges or prosecutors disagree with, with that. And that was the thrust of um, my constitutional consultation. Um, I don't know what I was supposed to do. Should I have not given my constitutional consultation? Should I have hidden my role in the case by pretending that, that paragraph was not written by me. This word for that is called plagiarism, a fraud. I wrote that paragraph. I am responsible for it. And that's why I signed the complaint of counsel, Alan Dershowitz's cons consultation. I have a, 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 a consultation company. That's what I do for a living. Um, I certainly don't make a living doing the podcast. So I'm, I make, and I don't make a living writing books. Um, I make a living by consulting, using my 60 years of experience as a lawyer to consult with other lawyers. That's what I did in this case. I had a retainer that said, I am a consultant to this and this law firm. 
um, on constitutional and legal issues, meaning, you know, this, this machine issue. And that's all I did. And yet uh, project, the 65 project is using that as a justification and an excuse for filing a, a bar charge against me. But let's be clear what their motive is. They didn't go after other lawyers who um, were involved in this case or may have been sanctioned. They went after me because I wrote an op-ed saying I will defend lawyers who were um, uh, targeted by the 65 Project. I still hope to do that, but uh, I'm going to need uh, some additional work and some additional fees and some additional great lawyering by my excellent lawyers uh, to make it possible for me to... Uh, uh, keep my promise, because remember, I made my promise before a bar charge had been filed uh, against me. And so um, I'm hoping to be able to keep my promise. I will try my best to keep my promise. So if there are lawyers out there who have been targeted by the 65 Project, call me and we'll figure out a way of me helping you um, by lending you my 60 years of constitutional uh, expertise. That's That's all I can do. That's the only product that I have is my experience, my mind, my writing skills, etc. And so um, I hope to be able to continue to do that. Having a bar complaint also limits me in other pro bono cases, uh, pro bono capital cases, which I have done and am doing now, pro, pro bono cases involving the First Amendment um, and other cases. Um, you know, basically, if they file a bar charge against somebody, you bench them. And, uh, and that's why the bar ought to look very hard at people who file complaints and ought to look at the motives of people who file complaints, but they don't in general. And so it's a work in progress, and I'll keep reporting to you uh, what we have done and what the results have been and how we're fighting back. And, uh, and of course, I know many of you will support me in my efforts, and I appreciate that very much. Okay, let's turn to some letters. I already read you the Majinka letter. And sang you the song. I wonder how many audience members I lost when I sang that song uh, or any song. Let's go to some other letters. When you return from the wedding, congratulations. I got a lot of congratulatory notes about the wedding and I convey the congratulations to uh, my wonderful daughter and my new son-in-law. When you come back from the wedding, I think we'd like a rundown on the potential interlocutory orders that may get Trump to an appellate court anytime prior to jury deliberations? It's a great question. And there's no clear answer. Well, it says may. So there is a clear answer to may. Um, so, so, so let's go, let's go down them. Uh, the first one of course is the scheduling. Uh, can you appeal a scheduling order? If the scheduling order denies you your right to counsel and your right to prepare a defense, sixth amendment gives you a right to a defense. And, you can't have a defense in um, in four months or six months when you have an extraordinarily complicated indictment. So is the issue of timing subject to appeal? There are two types of appeals you can take. They're very similar. One is called a writ of mandamus. There are variations on the writ of mandamus, but basically it's a writ of mandamus. It's a writ taken to the appellate court that asks them to mandate to tell the trial court to behave in a certain way. And then there's what's called an interlocutory appeal. That is an appeal that can be taken before the final verdict in the case. Most appeals can be taken only after the case is over so that you have to wait until you're convicted. If you're acquitted, obviously, the government can't appeal. But if you're convicted, uh, you can appeal. And normally you have to wait and say, look, they didn't give me enough time to prepare. But 
there are certain cases where if it's an extreme denial of due process and obvious on its face, the court may very well allow an interlocutory appeal or a mandamus. So that's one. The other is change of venue. Um, the D.C. case is a particular example where um, everybody in D.C. was a victim of this crime. The crime was taking over the Capitol building. Uh, policemen were hurt. Citizens were hurt. People were right there. Um, District of Columbia, I think, voted about 95 percent against Donald Trump and probably 80 percent of the pot potential jury veneer hates his guts and will do anything to see him go to prison. In fact, there was a letter. I didn't, I didn't read that letter. A letter that says, you know, you did this opening argument as a prosecutor. That's not what the prosecutor is going to do. The prosecutor is going to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is Donald Trump. Vote to convict him. Thank you. Um, that's essentially going to be the message. They have to hide that message behind legal lees and they'll make arguments, and some of them may be, in fact, even strong and compelling. But if you have a veneer, which 95% of the potential jury pool voted against him, and 80% hate his guts and will do anything to prevent him from being elected, that, the, the quality of the argument matters a little less than who the defendant is. Um, you know, Judge, Judge Wachtel once said, you can get a grand jury, a prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Well, I think a prosecutor can get a grand jury in the District of Columbia to convict Donald Trump of uh, almost anything based on who he is and, and what the people there think of him. Um, okay, this is a very nice letter. Uh, I hope you're remembered in history in the same light as John Adams. He is one of the greatest proponents of the rule of law and high moral ethics in American history. You and I are different in political perspectives, but I know no greater American than you. Thank you. Um, another nice one. Uh, I know that this is a bit off topic, but I just read your book, Chutzpah, 1991, and I was surprised how current many of the topics you raised in the book still are. Well, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism uh, are persistent themes, uh, not only in America, but throughout the world. And so tragically, a book in 1991 uh, 32 years ago, uh, remains uh, tragically relevant. That book was the number one bestseller in the New York Times. And um, it was shocking to me that it was the number one bestseller because to be the number one bestseller, it has to have widespread appeal all over the country. If you get a book that sells more copies but is focused in New York, that won't become the number one bestseller. So the book has to have had widespread, and it sold a lot of copies in, in Iowa and Michigan and Louisiana and, and New Mexico. So I was obviously very, very pleased with the, the, the fact that so many people read that, read that book. Uh, this is an interesting one. John Demjanjic, remember I talked about the, the Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka, uh, who was convicted and sentenced to death in Israel. And then the Israeli Supreme Court reversed his conviction uh, based on new evidence. And the conviction was reversed by a judge, a close friend of mine, um, President Aaron Barak of the Israel Supreme Court, who lost much of his family during the Holocaust and who had to hide during the Holocaust in a wall um, um, and was almost found by, by the Nazis. And he wrote the opinion freeing this Nazi. And everybody knew he was a Nazi if he wasn't. Ivan the Terrible, he was another terrible Ivan, a Ukrainian who 
was a hand-on participant in the Holocaust. And um, so um, the letter says, John Demyonik lived 10 minutes away from me growing up in Seven Hills, Ohio, just south of East Pleasant Valley Road near the old Kmart. Still unbelievable that a Nazi war criminal lived so close. Thank you for helping to prosecute him. Well, if you want to read my account of that, I wrote a book called Just Revenge. And uh, it's, I think I have to say, my favorite book. It's a novel based on what happened to my own family. Um, uh, on, the, on the cover is a picture of my entire Polish family. Um, and uh, everyone in the picture was murdered with one exception. Uh, he had moved to Palestine, Israel. And uh, he urged the others to come with him, and they didn't. And every one of them, children, the elderly, were all killed. And so I wrote a novel about the survivor finding the man who did the killing, a Ukrainian um, um, soldier who did the killing, and, and what, what kind of revenge would be appropriate because the man himself was old and dying. It's an interesting book. If you ever want to read it, you can get it. You can get it online. Um, <laughs> this is a lot. Of, a lot of people wrote this. Mr. Dershowitz, you're a better defense attorney. Um, remember, I did a closing uh, opening argument for the defense and an opening argument for for the prosecution of the Trump case. And a number of people said this to me. You're a better defense attorney. What I liked about your presentation and your opening arguments that you laid out is that you put justice first and reminded the jury of the point. I enjoyed that you were able to keep partisanship um, out of it. Um, I am a better defense attorney than a prosecutor, and, and my heart wasn't in the prosecution presentation. I just decided I would put it forward for for your for your interest. Um, professor, one of the more common reasons you hear from courts for not hearing a case is lack of standing. Is the court system abusing the concept as an excuse to hear culturally divisive cases? Yeah, and a co one court already said that they wouldn't hear the 14th Amendment argument about disqualification because the person bringing the suit didn't have standing. But now some presidential candidate who nobody's ever heard of um, has brought a suit saying, if you allow Trump to run, you would be denying me my right to uh, an open field. And we'll see whether the court uses standing. Standing means you personally have to have been hurt to bring a lawsuit. And so we'll see whether the courts uh, use standing as an excuse to avoid what would be otherwise a very, very difficult issue. So keep your questions coming and thank you again for all your congratulations and well wishes on my wonderful daughter and son-in-law's um, um, wedding celebration. And we'll see you all tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.